As it turns out, stupid is a biblical category, though seldom is stupidity identified in so many words. But stupidity in the biblical sense has less to do with IQ than it does with what we might call practical knowledge. The opposite of stupidity is, in a biblical framework, wisdom. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In this week's broadcast, I am going to deliver a sermon that I preached at St. Margaret's Episcopal Church some years ago. This is based on a text from the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, the first six verses, which I will read before the sermon. The sermon's title is Dining at Wisdom's Table. Here is the biblical passage. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who is without sense, she says. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave simpleness and live and walk in the way of insight. Here ends the biblical reading. A farmer was looking forward to a friend's visit. For months he had been engaged in a major effort to improve his property. Now he couldn't wait to show off the results. As soon as the friend arrived, the tour commenced. The farmer excitedly pointed out the newly refurbished and repainted barn. His friend, who was a religiously earnest man, to say the least, acknowledged how impressive the new barn was, but cautioned that the farmer should actually give credit to God for the finished product. Then the farmer took his friend to see the brand new fences that now enclosed the fields. Once more, the friend conceded that the new fencing was terrific, but in reality God should be thanked for the outcome. Though becoming a little irritated, the farmer took the friend to the next project, state-of-the-art milking stalls. Aren't they splendid, he gushed. To be sure, the friend allowed, but don't forget to give glory to God. The farmer had finally had it. He said to his earnest friend, I freely admit that I should be grateful to God for how my farm now looks. But you should have seen the place when God had it by himself. What was the matter with the farmer's friend? He wasn't completely out in left field theologically. After all, God has given us life, brains, muscles, ambition ingenuity and the like, so that we can build fine farms and ranches, erect great structures and transportation systems, invent miracle drugs and effective medicines, improve lives with powerful computers, 
and communication networks. There's nothing wrong with giving God ultimate thanks for these gifts. Equally, we don't want to be too hard on the friend for his religious zeal. Granted, zeal may be misplaced, and terminal seriousness is sometimes wearisome. But do we want to squelch this entirely? Isn't being overly earnest better than apathy, indifference, and religious indolence? The answer seems obvious. I'd rather deal with someone who cares too much than one who cares too little or not at all. The friend's problem was in the end quite simple. He was stupid. How so? Well, he failed to see how thrilled his farmer buddy was about his accomplishments. He was insensitive to the hard work the farmer had put into his beloved possession, and he was more interested in calling attention to his own religious outlook than to the farmer's appropriate pride at a job well done. That sort of social ineptitude is deserving of the word stupid. As it turns out, stupid is a biblical category, though seldom is stupidity identified in so many words. But stupidity in the biblical sense has less to do with IQ than it does with what we might call practical knowledge. The opposite of stupidity is, in a biblical framework, wisdom. Proverbs is big on acquiring and displaying wisdom, on being insightful and thoughtful, on demonstrating prudence and caution, on knowing society's rules and the needs of real people in real situations. Proverbs promotes the ability to be careful and caring, measured and aware of nuance, humble and teachable. All of this comes under the category of wisdom. The opposite of wisdom is many things, being simplistic, being stubborn, being rash, being willfully blind, being unaware of one's surroundings, being disrespectful, being unmannerly, being boorish. And all these negative traits at the end of the day are, well, stupid. That's why this little section of Proverbs depicts personified wisdom holding a dinner party to which the unwise are invited. The idea is that after eating at wisdom's table, partaking of wisdom's fare, and drinking from wisdom's libations, a step toward wisdom will have been taken. Interestingly, this Proverbs text continues the food motifs that we have seen other passages in the last few weeks. But in this instance, the metaphor is somewhat different. It has less to do with God's feeding God's people and more to do with availing ourselves of a balanced diet which promotes an immune system to ward off the stupidity virus. There are few fast and hard rules to wisdom's virtues. Do we know precisely when someone is being prudent or measured or insightful or thoughtful and the like? Mostly we think we do, but there is always room for debate. That's the way of wisdom. 
However, the lack of technical precision need not deter us from reflecting on wisdom or how the food on wisdom's table might nourish us. I'm going to go out on a limb and mention a few items where I believe some good old-fashioned biblical wisdom might apply. But there's a problem. As soon as someone presents him or herself as wise, that's an excellent indication that that person is unwise. The wise are not vain or impressed with their own ability or confident in their superiority. So where do I get off posing as a wise person? I suppose the only thing I have going for me is my age. Are we not supposed to get wiser with age? Don't we think the worst sort of fool is an old fool? Does not longevity afford us the opportunity to accumulate wisdom over the years? I still might not qualify. That evaluation will be up to you. For now, I'm going to bring up a couple of issues that, in my humble opinion, require us to avoid stupidity and embrace wisdom. It is a colossal understatement to say that we are living in a period of extreme political division. Arguably, for many in the United States, this condition has never been this bad. Granted, historians help us realize that the country has had to deal with serious divisions previously. Obviously, states once went to war with each other in a time when political divisions went beyond the breaking point. Still, though we are not in a civil war these days, at least not yet, political debate has become seriously acrimonious and on occasion violent. We witness every day, either in person or various media, social or mainstream, examples of distortion, trading of half-truths, demonizing of opponents, reducing complex issues to sound bites, conspiracy theories galore, accusations of malfeasance of the other guy, loss of confidence in institutions, failure of political compromise, and the like. No single sermon or a series of sermons will be a panacea for what ails us in this political climate. Still, it may be helpful to say a little something about a Christian response to these times. In that spirit, I offer the following. The first item I want to address is the notion that a particular political philosophy or policy or decision is quote-unquote on the right side of history. The idea is this. Support my ideas or this position or risk being exposed as wrong and wrong-headed because this is the direction in which history is moving. Such an attitude assumes there is some inexorable and immutable force called history that is moving the world not only in a particular direction, but most emphatically in the right direction. Not only is this view absurd, it is dangerous. What you and I call history is the result of countless decisions made by human beings. 
there is nothing inevitable about it. History does not move toward communism or socialism or capitalism or democracy or monarchy or oligarchy or theocracy. If any of those systems come about, it is because human beings in social networks made them come about. When someone tells us to get on the right side of history, it is a way of ending debate and discussion. Being on the wrong side of history from this vantage point is not only stupid, but insane. It would be like refusing to believe in gravity or the speed of light. Let me make the point bluntly. It is stupid and foolish to believe that we are nothing but pawns being moved about by historical forces over which we have no control. Wisdom requires us to be smarter about this. Another issue is the twin of this one. I refer here to the belief that moral enlightenment advances through time such that moral and ethical positions that are modern are always to be preferred to moral and ethical positions of the past. How many times have you heard someone assert that such and such a stance will take us back to the Middle Ages, or take us back to the 50s, or take us back to the Dark Ages? To be sure, there are a number of ethical or moral positions that people in the past advocated that is deserving of censure. But it is folly to assume that folk in the past were wrong about almost everything, whereas we moderns are right about almost everything. The worst kings of Europe in the Middle Ages did not inflict on their subjects the level of brutality that was standard practice for the principal dictators of the 20th century. Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein. It takes a great deal of moxie to claim that we moderns are moral exemplars compared to our barbaric ancestors. To be sure, in the past there was slavery, one of the most despicable evils that human beings have ever inflicted on other human beings. But the present has given us sex trafficking, an abomination that is not abating, but malignantly growing. In the past, people were capable of making weapons that were gruesomely effective. But presently, we have to fear arms capable of mass destruction on an unimaginable scale. In the past, some societies, for a variety of horrible reasons, practiced various forms of infanticide. In the present, in the circles in which most of us run, the right to abortion is not even considered a matter worthy of discussion, let alone debate. All I'm saying here is that it is foolish to believe that we have arrived at some moral nirvana. If we are wise, we know how much work there is to do and how much more thinking we need to bring to bear on the moral dilemmas we currently face. I bring up one final matter about which I believe more wisdom is requisite. It has to do with science.
First, the basics. If scientific method establishes something as true, then we as thoughtful human beings, as wise people, and certainly as Christians, are required to believe it. God is the author of all truth. There is nothing in Christian faith or thought that requires belief in falsehood. Gravity, the speed of light, the temperature at which water boils, the human genome, and so forth, may be happily embraced. There is nothing about established scientific truth that the Christian need fear. So why, then, is wisdom needed in this particular sphere? For two reasons. One, scientists learn something new about the physical universe every day. In that sense, scientifically established truth always has a provisional element. Newtonian physics was not the final word. Einstein's physics was not the final word either. There is always the possibility of a new paradigm, another perspective, a fresh outlook, further data. Some of you will remember when climatologists argued with great certainty that the world was on the brink of a new ice age. That was in the 70s. Now climatologists are arguing with equal certainty that the science of the 70s was incorrect. In fact, we are entering a time of significant global warming. Science is seldom settled without remainder, even when more recent science trumps older science. Even when science is properly insistent, which is likely the case about global warming, there is room for debate in how we respond to that. Otherwise, we respond with something like ethanol, which consumes more fossil fuel to produce than it saves by using it. The other reason is this. Science is not morally neutral as long as scientists are human beings. Indeed, social scientists have shown over and over that human bias is a factor in all discovery, even scientific discovery. That does not mean we should be cynical about science or distrusting of scientists, but it does mean that we need to be wise about the whole enterprise. For example, science may make it possible for us to determine whether a fetus is 100% healthy. But science cannot speak to the moral issue of whether we should terminate all pregnancies when a completely healthy baby is in doubt. That's another matter entirely. Technical judgment is one thing. Moral and ethical judgment is something else entirely. It is quite simple after all. Wisdom calls on us to be smart, appropriately questioning, wary of our own prejudices, willing to listen to counter-arguments, leery about simplistic answers to complex questions, open to nuance, and humility in light of the fact that, in biblical terms, we always see through a glass darkly. Come, sit at wisdom's table, enjoy the dinner, and wise up. Amen. Once again, let me commend you to go to my website, faspina.com, 
and include there your email so that I have a way to contact you when we do our mini courses. Also, contact me at this email, fspina106 at gmail.com and communicate to me any questions you have and I will dedicate a podcast or two or three, depending on the number of questions that you have in your emails. Thank you. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.